Welcome back to Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, and we're proud to be a community partner with Forward Radio WFMP LP 106.5. The views and opinions expressed here on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. And I just want to remind folks that our pledge drive here at the station is March 27th through April the 9th. We'll have special gifts for donors. Check it out. Go to forwardradio.org. We're celebrating our birthday four years ago. We flipped the switch to go on the air. So please support the shows, both local and national. And again, go to forwardradio.org. Also, Monday, April the 5th at 2 p.m., Single Payer Radio will broadcast live for a special show for the station's uh, four-year birthday and membership drive. Listeners will hear from a variety of single-payer advocates during the broadcast. Mark your calendar, party time, Monday, April the 5th at 2 p.m. And I also want to thank the Louisville chapter of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, who agreed to take this project on probably about eight years ago. Chris Everett, thanks so much. And to the late Tim Sheldorf. Tim was a tremendous workhorse to get Forward Radio on the air. Thanks, FOR and WFMPLP 106.5 is now its own 501c3 nonprofit. Here in the studio today, Drs. Mike Flynn and Eugene Shively. Guys, welcome. And Mark, good to be back again. Gene, good to see you. It's good to see you. Gene's looking good, dressed up there in this uh, country suit. (laughs) (laughs) And Mark, here we are, Uh, (laughs) bare-chested. Well, this is uh, is part three of of a series of of discussions that we've had over the last uh, two previous shows uh, about the overload of uh, administrators in American health care. Uh, the first one, uh, we, we uh, addressed the issue of um, pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, the second one, we, we talked about uh, for-profit health insurance companies. And, um, and today, uh, the, the, the details of the topic for conversation will be um, investor-owned health facilities. Uh, but I, I'd like to... Uh, since we don't know uh, whoever's listening that might not have heard the other programs, I'd like to at least set the table a little bit by making a few comments um, about this issue of administrative overload and then ask Gene to uh, talk about some of his investigations into the into the finances. So uh, someone listening who might not have listened before will understand why we're doing this. 
So let me begin. Um, let me tell a story which is going to sound a little off the wall, um, but maybe when I get finished with it, it'll, it'll make sense. <clears throat> uh, in the early 1968, I spent um, I spent some months in a in a in a hospital in Vietnam, down in the Mekong Delta, um, treating the civilian casualties of the war. And one of my first patient encounters was uh, an individual who has sustained a shrapnel wound to the abdomen. Uh, when an explosive device explodes, whether it's a hand grenade, a landmine, a bomb, or a rocket, uh, the metal casing around the explosive uh, materials fragments into a bunch of small metal pieces that fly around and do a lot of damage um, to the body. And in this case, one of those metal fragments had perforated through the uh, abdominal wall and had done some damage internally. Uh, put the patient to sleep, and I, as Gene knows, made a long midline incision. And I put my hand into the abdomen and had what could only be described as a holy you-know-what moment. And, Mark, I'm not going to say the word so that you don't cut me off or I get into trouble. <laughs> I really appreciate that, Gene. <laughs> okay. Or, or Mike. <laughs> so, um, and, and I could I could feel something sort of moving around in, in the peritoneal cavity. And after a bit of exploration, uh, my hand was came out with a, an 8-inch uh, ascaris, a tapeworm, wrapped around my finger. And and throughout the time I was there and other um, abdominal procedures that I had done, I realized that a large proportion of the population of Vietnam at that time had parasites. They were they just their intestinal tract, their small intestine was filled with these worms. So if you eat um, some food and it goes into your stomach and it's digested in your stomach, and duodenum, that then passes into your small intestine where it is then absorbed and the, the nutrients go to, uh, to, to make your, give your muscle uh, energy to move and build muscle mass and do all the things that the body needs. Um, if you have a bunch of parasites in there, they will uh, suck up that nutritional uh, materials and it doesn't go to your body. And I know this is a long-winded way to get around to describing why why we're here, because we, in healthcare in this country, we have a huge parasitic infestation of bean counters, administrators, managers, uh, bureaucrats, whatever you want to call them, um, in, in healthcare. Uh, I just want to make one more comment about that, and I'm going to ask Gene to get into the finances of it. So... Um, since the mid-1980s uh, until the late uh, 2010s, uh, and this is based upon um, uh, three information sources, a, a New York Times article in the business section on the 9th of June, 2019, the Bureau of um, Labor Statistics and Harvard Business Review. They all basically... Um, um, indicate the, the same uh, range of numbers uh, between the mid-1970s and the 
late 2010s, there's been an astonishing over 2,000% increase in uh, the administrators, bean counters, managers in healthcare in this country. Uh, this coincides with the rise of all of the for-profit health issues that we've been talking about for the last year. So the question is, who are these people? Uh, where are they? Who are they? What do they do? Um, they do not work on covert wards or covert floors. They don't work in ICUs. They don't work in the emergency rooms. And they don't uh, do COVID testing, and they don't give vaccinations. And that's the, re the, the, the purpose of our conversation today. We've talked about two examples uh, already, and today we're going to discuss um, uh, what I think is the most worrisome of all three. Gene, um, you have done some really interesting investigations into the finances of healthcare. How much is what the amount of revenue in healthcare in this country? Where the money goes, and how much of it is not used for healthcare? So you want to spend some time discussing that before we get into the details of of the investor-owned health facilities. Well, first, let me just say a disclaimer that what I say doesn't represent Taylor Regional Hospital, nor the University of Louisville or the Department of Surgery. Uh, I first got interested in this by uh, looking at the total amount of money spent in the United States, which is approximately uh, $3.6 trillion, and it represents uh, approximately... Uh, a fifth of the entire GNP of our uh, entire budget. And the interesting part is, is that approximately a third of that, $1.2 trillion, has really nothing to do with health care. For example, we have more administrative uh, care and uh, money spent than uh, any country in the world. It represents about 30% uh, of the wasted money. We have lots more administrators than any country in the world, and uh, sometimes we don't know what they do. Sometimes they are spending uh, time uh, with IT and electronic medical records We've created an extremely complicated reimbursement system. Each uh, insurance company's got their own reimbursement system. Everybody uh, uh, requires different forms for uh, different procedures, and sometimes they reject that. Sometimes we gotta get pre-authorization. Different insurance companies require different uh, uh, types of uh, pre-authorization. The United States is responsible for half of the entire drug bill of the entire world. And uh, where does that money go? Well, it goes uh, mainly uh, for profits. Uh, uh, and it's not just the drug companies. Uh, 
don't get me wrong, the drug companies have done some incredible things in the last few years, just in the current uh, endemic, developing vaccines as rapidly as they have. It, they've set all types of records, and so they've done a good job. They've developed monoclonal antibodies. Uh, they've developed uh, immunotherapy for cancer and some really uh, miracle drugs. But uh, a lot of that money is being wasted. For example, uh, pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, these are uh, in-between people who bargain with uh, the drug companies and the pharmaceutical companies, and they go back and forth. And if you're really interested in this, the next time you buy some drugs, uh, go to different pharmacies and see if the different uh, costs you have to pay. It's really amazing. Sometimes it can be over $100. And uh, you can also get some idea of going to good RX. Is to say you've got an expensive drug and you look it up on good RX, there can be Unbelievable difference. And why is there so much difference? It's the same drug. Well, it's mainly because uh, the pharmacy benefit managers have bid out uh, the drugs to the pharmaceutical companies, uh, I mean, from the pharmaceutical companies uh, to the drug stores, like they have a, s a separate bid at Kroger, a separate bid at CVS, separate bid at Walgreens, uh, and so they have a different price at different places, and there's all types of rebates. There are even situations where if you pay cash, you can get the drug a lot cheaper than if you use your insurance. Sometimes if you use your insurance and deductible, uh, the, uh, the pharmacy benefit managers and the pharmacy actually uh, makes more money, sometimes they make less. And uh, this is all in silos. It's, uh, nobody really knows how much uh, uh, it, people are making. Uh, there's all types of equity companies getting involved in healthcare. This is accelerating. They're buying up practices. They're controlling practices. They're controlling nursing homes just uh, in south-central Kentucky alone, where I'm from Campbellsville, Kentucky. Uh, most of the nursing homes are being bought up by equity companies. Now, what does that mean? We've got a for-profit company that's buying a nursing home and running it, so most of the patients in there are Medicare Medicaid. How are they going to make money? Well, they have to decrease the cost because Medicare and Medicaid is not going to start paying them more. Uh, but uh, this is becoming a trend. Hospitals are being bought up. Even for-profit hospitals are being bought up by equity companies. For example, LifePoint, which is a large company which controls a lot of uh, rural hospitals, and uh, various states have recently been bought up by Apollo, which is an equity company. We have uh, uh, su uh, supply companies that are being bought up by equity companies, and most of the time you don't even realize that they've been bought up. They maintain their name. They don't tell the customer. And so what you're paying for 
equipment, uh, probably 10% of that uh, money is going uh, to an equity company. Equity companies have investors. Uh, these investors may be private investors, or they could be a uh, retirement uh, uh, income uh, fund uh, for uh, school teachers in California. But uh, they're going for uh, not just for for medical uh, companies and for for sick folks. They're going for other reasons and for profit. We can go on and on and on uh, about how p private uh, uh, industry and uh, Wall Street is getting more and more involved in uh, our healthcare system. We're the only system in the world uh, where this happens. Uh, Gene, I thought Lifebuoy was a soap. <laughs> I think that my mother washed my mouth out with it when I was saying some of the words that Mark gets no That's about. I don't believe you said any of those words when you were a kid. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Uh, listen, uh, uh, let me, I, one of the things I neglected to do, Gene, remind me, is to make the usual disclaimer that whatever comments I make here are my own and do not represent the the uh, the views of the Department of Surgery or, or the University of Louisville. Uh, you know, the fundamental issue here is that, and, and this is, and you're right, this is something that only exists in this country. <clears throat> Healthcare in this country is committed, considered a commodity or a product something to be exploited by for-profit entities, whereas in the rest of the world, the other 30-plus first-world countries consider health care a, um, a fundamental, an essential public service and a government responsibility. Um, all of these other countries have put together systems which are similar but different, and we've talked about this before on this program, uh, but the, the fundamental goal or the basic goal is that all of their citizens have access to good health care. Uh, in this country, we have uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 million people who are either uninsured or underinsured and vulnerable to medical bankruptcy. Uh, this is an issue that really doesn't exist in the other first world countries wrote an article about this, and I've said this before on, on one of these programs, for Louisville Medicine, and when I was doing the research for it, I mean, I really couldn't find anything about medical bankruptcy in other countries. I finally found an article that indicated that there was one medical bankruptcy in the country of France, 70 million people in 2017. So this... All of these issues are based upon this idea that uh, that uh, healthcare is 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 a commodity like groceries or gasoline, and 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 is vulnerable to all of this exploitation. Now we have some nonprofit um, uh, entities providing healthcare in this country. They've got the public health service, <clears throat> got the um, the veterans administration system, which is not a perfect system, but it, it it seems to work very well and provides eligible veterans 
good care. And they, and they and it's kind of like the National Health Service in Britain. They have hospitals, they have pharmacies, they have outpatient clinics. And uh, the branches of the military service, in a similar way, have their own health care systems, which is also a nonprofit system. It simply provides health care for service members, uh, for retired personnel, and for politicians, because uh, I know that uh, John McCain had had some skin lesions removed at the uh, Naval Medical Center in Bethesda. I know Mitch McConnell has had some things done there. Uh, Ronald Reagan had his colon cancer removed at the Naval Medical Center. And um, uh, the, the last president, uh, Donald Trump, when he got on the elevator, uh, the elevator, I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, you were hoping. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when he got on the helicopter to go to a, mili- a flagship military hospital in, in, in Washington, D.C., uh, to get treated. And none of these people pay for anything. Um, I spent 20 years in the Navy uh, as a medical officer. And, uh, as a, and if you are an administrator in the, um, in the Navy, you are a medical service corps officer. And based upon um, an Institute of Defense Analysis report from 2014, there are more uh, medical corps officers than there are medical service corps officers in the Navy. And I'm fairly certain the same is true for the Army and the, and the Air Force healthcare systems. Uh, in this country, in, in, in our medical healthcare, uh, we don't really have a system, but in our medical healthcare process, there are 10 administrators to every practicing physician. So before we get into the, the, the specifics or the details of the different investor-owned uh, uh, health uh, facilities, uh, Gene, let me pass this over to you to make whatever comments you'd like to make. But and, uh, Let me just add yeah. uh, uh, one other nonprofit that's so important to many folks in our community and our country. It's the uh, community health centers around the, yes. Around the yes. country. Yes. Well, the whole issue of, of, of just providing health care as opposed to the conflict of interest between providing health care and using health care as a vehicle to, to profit is, is basically the reason that we've been having all these programs. Yeah, and the rural health care centers provide um, outstanding care and, uh, for people who can't afford it. Well, uh, what's uh, really uh, disturbing to me is in the last uh, year, uh, the private equity companies are taking advantage of the uh, COVID uh, epidemic. Uh, A lot of uh, physicians are uh, having less patients because patients are afraid to come into office, afraid that they might catch COVID, and so... Uh, the equity companies are taking advantage of that. They're going in and buying private practices. Uh, you may have noticed that uh, there are not very many doctors who are practicing solo on their own or even in uh, small groups. So uh, the companies go in uh, 
they offer a, a large uh, um, buy-in to the uh, practice. Uh, they give about uh, 20, 30 percent of uh, the <coughs> stock in the equity company to the physicians, and then uh, they buy the buildings, uh, the people who work for them, the supplies, and they can uh, decrease the cost of the supplies by buying in bulk, and they can also uh, compete with the insurance companies because eventually they will control the market. For example, in dermatology, they'll go in and buy one group, then they'll buy uh, other individual um, uh, dermatologists, and before long they've got a monopoly, and so they can increase the price that the insurance companies make. And then they start squeezing the dermatologists. Now, in most states, it's against the law for a separate entity, a non-medical practice, uh, to own a company like that. But uh, they keep the ownership uh, uh, in the uh, hands of the doctor. But uh, the, uh, the private equity company owns the rest. And then they start pressuring the doctor uh, to do things to make more money, do more biopsies, do uh, <clears throat> more procedures. And eventually, after four or five years, uh, they may have borrowed some money. Uh, they uh, made a profit, and they turn around. And this is common regardless of whether they're in medicine or not. Equity companies usually uh, buy companies that are borderline. Uh, they uh, work with them, and then they turn around and sell them for a profit. And they're doing the same thing uh, in medicine. Uh, the same thing's going on in several large urology practices, and I was surprised to find out that about 10, uh, no, I'm sorry, about a third of the ER practices in the United States uh, is owned by uh, equity companies. So you've got another factor involved uh, when you go uh, and see one of these doctors. Uh, the doctors, I'm sure, are trying to do the right thing, but um, the, they, they've got uh, some pressure on them uh, to try uh, to uh, make more money. And I, I don't think it's ethical or moral to get um, profit involved in taking care of sick folks. Just think about uh, if your uh, grandmother is in the nursing home and uh, she's had a stroke, uh, why should 10% of the amount of money that's being paid for her to be there go to a uh, for-profit uh, company? No one else does that, and we haven't done it in the past. It's only since the uh, uh, 70s and 80s have we evolved into a for-profit industry. And healthcare is now an industry uh, in this country. Yeah, let's uh, <clears throat> let's talk about uh, about investor-owned medical practices. Um, and um, before we do that, I, I don't know if you all remember. It was a, an earlier program. We we at the end of the program, 
we raised this rhetorical question. I think we were talking about for-profit health insurance companies and how, how much money they were sucking out of the system. And, and that, that the money that simply goes in the door as 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 uh, as premiums that people pay with the expectation of getting health care. But the the question we raised was, well, as bad as it is, can it get any worse? And the answer to the question was yes, and it's already happening, and that's what we're talking about today is the investor-owned health care facilities, so medical practice groups. Uh, I'm going to talk about some things that have come from two um, reference sources, a, a, a JAMA, J-A-M-A, Journal of American Medical Association article on 18 February 2020, and the Bloomberg Business Week. Um, article uh, from 20 May 2020. And I would make another comment before getting into the details, uh, and I think it's important for any anyone listening, is not to take anything that any of the three of us say at its face value, but hopefully that whatever we say will maybe give them something to think about and I would encourage them to go to whatever other information source they consider is reliable or important and double-check what we're saying. Don't believe us. We're not making this stuff up, but go, go check it out yourselves. So let's get into uh, the private equity-owned physician medical groups. A number of issues there, as Gene has already alluded to. <clears throat> Most of these companies expect a return on investment of somewhere in the average of around 20%, whether in the first two, three, or four years, um, their um, uh, uh, explanation or their what I would call their shtick about their, the benefit of having an equity um, owner or manager or partner is that they claim that they will make the practice, quote, more efficient. Now, more efficient for uh, a hedge fund operator means that they make more money out of it. More efficient for a health care provider means that they provide better health care, and this represents a fundamental conflict of interest. So as Gene mentioned, um, they usually... You let's just assume you're buying into a, a, a practice, and um, one of the first things that usually comes along when the new uh, new recruits uh, are are brought on board, there's a non-disclosure agreement. So nobody, well, not just be with the new recruits, but nobody knows exactly what's going on because all of the the partners have had to sign the, the non-disclosure agreement. Uh, these, both of these articles suggested that most of these uh, exchange or changes in the investor-owned um, uh, uh, health medical practices are occurring in the South. Uh, anesthesia, the emergency room, family practice tend to be the top four. Um, I had some personal experience with a um, investor-owned anesthesia group at a Louisville hospital where I practiced before I retired. And I retired about two years ago, and this was about two years before that. 
and the uh, the anesthesia group which had been there for for twenty some odd years, and uh, from my standpoint, were really good because I, as a head and neck surgeon, having a group that could do difficult intubations was really important. And um, the anesthesia group and the hospital couldn't come to agreement about um, their future relationship. And, and to be fair, I think the hospital had some pretty reasonable requests and the anesthesia group was, was being a bit recalcitrant. But uh, that's, that's another issue. Uh, hospital management, the hospital finally uh, decided that they ended their relationship and they hired an investor-owned group uh, from Texas. And um, I, I'm going to read um, a letter that I sent to the, um, the medical director who has happened to be the chief of anesthesiology, um, which was sent about six months after they came on board and I sent this copies of this letter to the CEO of the company and everybody else that I could send it to including the chairman of the department of surgery and so I'm just going to read the second paragraph and <coughs> I'm going to leave the names out and the dates uh, the arrival of um, this company uh, at that this time was a worrisome event uh, this began with the introduction of a revolving door of locum anesthesiologists, many ranging from professionally mediocre to marginal competence to incompetent. At a recent Louisville Surgical Society meeting, one of the surgical residents reminded me of an incident where a tooth was knocked out during a routine intubation of one of my patients, and the anesthesiologist attempted to replace it into the socket after I had left the operating room talk with the patient's family. Um, also, had indicated in the letter that the that, that um, gentleman that I had sent, the, um, the physician who was chief of anesthesiology, who I had sent the letter to, indicated to me that they were hiring a group of, of cardiac anesthesiologists. Um, and this was a hospital that did some cardiac surgery, but it really wasn't what I would consider a major um, aspect of their medical care. And I raised the question of how, um, how proficient uh, cardiac anesthesiologists were in doing difficult intubation because there were at least um, six surgeons doing head and neck surgery or endocrine surgery where the ability to do uh, difficult intubation was an important part of the process. So uh, I don't know how things are going now. This really didn't start out very well. Uh, let me just um, mention a few uh, more issues related to how a practice changes when um, it becomes investor-owned or investor-managed, and then I'm going to pass this back to Gene again for his thoughts. Um, <clears throat> again, um, Annualized return on investment over two or three years. Uh, th the first thing that, that happened in this uh, large dermatology practice uh, in California was um, a uh, I, I discussion about how the, the decision process would change 
and it was indicated that uh, the the medical decision making would 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 be would have changed so that there would be some influence uh, by the investor group um, in the medical decision making, which when you think about it is really kind of interesting. And they, in the example of this, was kind of be going to be like a marriage where two people would get together and decide what was the best thing to do. Uh, the other issue was after, as Gene had mentioned earlier, after, after the acquisition, they bought supplies and in bulk. Um, they encouraged uh, recruitment of new physicians, and, and all of these new physicians would come on board with um, non-compete agreements. They established a scorecard with daily and monthly or periodic financial goals. There was a, a, a procedures were encouraged. There was a bonus program. Uh, they encouraged um, 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 revenue-raising procedures, uh, doing biopsies, uh, Botox, and Mohs. So everybody, everybody coming into a dermatology practice really doesn't need a biopsy unless the managers are encouraging, you know, biopsies to be done. Um, the medical assistants were, were um, again, encouraged to check more boxes on the physical examination form, often indicating that more, ana more uh, um, areas were examined than, the, than the, the dermatologist had actually examined. Which, which actually is a form of healthcare fraud, when we get down to it. Uh, and then, then the, some of the other issues, the the um, uh, the biopsies or the excisions were sent to um, uh, pathologists who either were also owned or managed by the investor group or had some relationship. So wherever the pathology was being sent for analysis, this often changed and the and the and the the pathology was sent to some other place. Um, and anyone who does any kind of uh, surgery that involves tumor or tissue knows the importance of having a pathologist who's good at surgical pathology as opposed to uh, laboratory medicine or, or some other things. Uh, last example before I pass this over to Jean was the, uh, the, the purchase of, of supplies from an, uh, either another investor-owned company or a company with a relationship with the investor owners or the investor managers. And um, one, of the, one of the worrisome examples of this was the, 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 the quality of the, the, uh, uh, the supplies at this, in this one case really didn't match up to the quality of the supplies that they had gotten before this investor group took over this large dermatology practice. And just one example was the, the needles. If you have a needle, there's a little plastic tip on the needle where you insert it into the syringe, and then the needle sticks out the other end. 
uh, and in, and and for a period of time, they had acquired uh, uh, a number of really poor quality uh, needles, where, where the needle actually broke off during the injection, and so that the dermatologist either had to pull it out or they had to dig around in the skin to get the needle out. Again, just these are just a number of examples of of the this fundamental conflict of interest between just simply the ability to provide health care and a, an assortment of ways that, that, that uh, an investor-owned company looks at uh, 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 finding different methods or steps to extract more profit out of a practice. Jane, your thoughts? Uh, um, other companies are uh, getting into uh, health care. Uh, for example, Amazon is recently moved into several states with health care where they're going to provide health care uh, for um, the, their employees, and then I think they're going to advance that. Uh, Kentucky's one of those states. Walmart's getting into health care. Of course, Humana started out as a health care company right here in Louisville. They became an insurance company, but now they're getting uh, back in uh, uh, to uh, uh, clinics. Um, and we even got Silicon Valley getting into healthcare with uh, telemedicine. We have uh, uh, for-profit companies working for for-profit companies, uh, providing uh, wellness exams, uh, uh, other... Uh, for-profit uh, uh, companies getting more and more involved. Now, uh, one of the things we haven't talked about on these programs is, um, uh, is fraud, and uh, we don't know exactly uh, how much uh, is, uh, that represents. It's estimated to be about $100 billion. It's... Uh, Probably more than that. It probably represents 10 to 12 percent of the money spent, and uh, so there's all different types of fraud. And the federal government usually only goes after stuff that's a very obvious. For example, people uh, billing for procedures they didn't do. But there's other types of fraud that's very difficult to um, uh, to detect. For example. Billing services that uh, were not uh, done, uh, upcoding services, uh, for, uh, for example, uh, there are different codes for different visits. There are different codes for different types of procedures, and it's easy to upcode these procedures, uh, duplicate claims, uh, uh, excessive services, unnecessary services, kickbacks. Uh, if, uh, for example, if you uh, pay uh, another doctor to refer patients to you, and uh, uh, another entity, which I'm not exactly sure how it works, but uh, copying, paste, pasting entities on health, uh, electronic medical records. One of the things that's being done, uh, again, which I'm not a computer expert, is that the the way uh, bills are are sent out on the internet? The uh, uh, the government looks for correctness, um, and 
If you've got everything spelled correctly and put in correctly, uh, then they go ahead and pay the bill. But it's very hard to detect if something's upcoded. That would require an extensive procedure. So they go ahead and pay it. Apparently, there's a lot of uh, uh, fraud along those lines. Uh, a lot of this is uh, borderline. It depends how you define it. But th there's a lot of that going on. Uh, uh, most of the big fish are uh, uh, getting caught, but it only represents uh, a small amount of, uh, of the total. It's probably maybe we, the government may be catching 10% uh, of it. So uh, more examples of a huge amount of money that's being wasted on health care that should be going uh, to um, patient care. And, and let me talk about one other thing. We've, uh, I've had uh, several questions by friends uh, say, well, so uh, why are you so interested in this? Why can't uh, you just use this as a vehicle uh, for uh, uh, helping uh, your doctor friends or the hospital uh, uh, get money? Uh, they get it through the equity company. Well, because it's uh, for profit, and we are, at least traditionally, have been a profession, and a profession is a uh, group of people, traditionally has been law, the clergy, and medicine, where we provide services for people regardless of their ability to pay. And that's different than uh, uh, selling uh, a car or a diamond ring. You know, you expect to make money on that. But providing medical services is to, to help people and regardless of their ability to pay. For example, if I get called to the emergency room at midnight with somebody who's got a appendicitis, then my job is to take uh, their appendix out. It's not my job to say, well, uh, this is going to cost you $1,000, and if you don't pay, I'm not going to take care of you. That's a real professional. Uh, and uh, we need to get back to that. I agree with you, Gene, and, that, and that's kind of why we're, we've spent as much time as we have in here <laughs> driving Mark nuts talking about these things. All right, I'd like to get back into the, 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 some of the specifics of, of, of these investor-owned health care facilities and talk about nursing homes because this, this is, at least in my opinion, the, the worst of the worst example because in, in, in this situation, some of the most vulnerable in our population are, are being exploited. And uh, again, the, the reference source for, for this is, is uh, the 14th of March of this year, New York Times, a front page article. And, and this was this, this uh, very specific. There were, it, it, it names names, places, uh, facilities all over the country. And 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 the and the basis of the reporting again was multiple sources. So there were a long list of examples of of poor performance and neglect, mostly related to staffing, in these investor-owned nursing homes. 
One example is was uh, is the 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 frequency of a bed sore or decubitus ulcer. So if you put your hand on your lower back and you feel a hard the hardness of your pelvis, depending upon how much uh, how much weight you carry, you could have an inch or two or three of 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 skin and and fatty tissue over that. And if that individual lies in bed and doesn't get moved, the skin and the um, fatty tissue under it will die, and, and it creates an ulcer. And this is called a decubitus ulcer or a bed sore. Uh, these individuals uh, frequently wear diapers. And as you know, a diaper, if a diaper isn't changed uh, on a regular basis, um, the, it fills with fecal material, and often these um, decubitus ulcers or bed sores are contaminated with um, fecal material. And there were a number of references to this in, in this article. Another example was this poor woman was put on the toilet, and then she was left by the staff, and in an attempt to get off and clean herself, she fell and broke her ankle. Um, again, I'm going through the a list of hair-raising experiences. Uh, everyone in a nursing home you know, isn't there sort of waiting to depart the earth. There are some people in nursing homes that are recovering from, from uh, trauma, from accidents. And in this one case, there was a surgical infection which was, uh, which was, which, when they, when they took the dressing off, there were maggots in the wound. There were multiple examples of, of patients uh, or, or residents in these assisted care facility and nursing homes that were over-medicated to keep them passive. There are falls from chairs. Um, the high infection and death rates um, uh, related to COVID were often due to staffing issues. Uh, uh, all of the issues of the decubiti are, are often related to the staff, in, in an inadequate staff to get her in there and, and turn, turn patients, get them out of bed and make them walk. Uh, another example was, um, uh, uh, and this was a nursing home um, somewhere up in the Northeast where, where the residents were awakened at three or four o'clock in the morning to be fed and then they were left for hours before until their next meal and again all this has to do with um staffing and the 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 uh, explanation of how things are improved if a nursing home is run by an investor-owned company is that they, quote, make it more efficient. And as I mentioned, as I said earlier, the more efficient um, uh, um, aspect of the uh, for-profit entity is a way to make more money out of the nursing home, which generally involves decreasing the most, the simplest and quickest way is to reduce staffing. Uh, and, and and what's more efficient from a healthcare provider is providing better, um, better, better health care or better care. Mark says there's five more minutes. Uh, Gene, as we finish this up, I, I, 
like you to you had made some mention either in the last program or the program before about the experience that uh, the surgeon from Boston, Atul Gawande, had in um, uh, doing some work with I think was it Amazon? I can't remember the other companies, <coughs> and 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 what they decided after they had they eventually disbanded the 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 activity that they had. Well, as you may remember, this was in the news uh, about two and a half years ago. Um, Berkshire, uh, Amazon, and J.P. Morgan yeah. decided that uh, they were going to form their own uh, healthcare company, and they hired uh, the surgeon who's fairly famous um, and had a lot of experience uh, with writing and. Uh, healthcare management to try to set up a company that they would better do their uh, healthcare for their employees. So here we have three of the uh, best companies in America, and uh, they were a failure. Uh, it just they couldn't get it to work. And I was really interested that. Uh, and one of the statements that uh, he made at, uh, when he stepped down as CEO is that he did not think that uh, the health care in America could be fixed uh, without government intervention. Now, that doesn't mean that um, the government has to completely take over. Uh, there are a lot of people who are extremely uh, opposed to that. I don't think it would pass Congress right now. I myself has been accused of being a socialist. Uh, I don't think I'm a socialist. I've been to Cuba. I've been to China. What did you did you read Did you read uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, uh, the editorial page a couple of days in the Courier Journal? Yeah, I did read uh, that. Well, he he's he's keeping us from marching the road, the march, the healthcare march to socialism. Hmm. Well, you know, I agree with you, and I, this is the reason I wanted, I wanted you to do that, because I think it's the recognition, and it's important, that the only way that the healthcare system in this country is going to change in a fundamental and significant way is if it is done by the central government. If you just look at the the, 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 the energy fiasco in Texas or, or some of the way Medicare has been managed in, in Texas and Arkansas and Mississippi and places like that, uh, letting states pick away at these things in different ways, it, it just that isn't, it isn't going to work. Uh, uh, you know, uh, this... This program is sponsored by Kentuckians for single payer, and I don't know how long it's going to take, but that's really the only way that this health care in this country is going to get out of the, the hole it's in. And, and, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. All we have to do is look around the world. The British do it one way with a com all and complete, you know, system where they run the hospitals, they run the pharmacies, they run the physician offices. Uh, up in Canada, they have a single payer system that covers doctor and hospital costs. Uh, you can get private health insurance in either of those countries. 
Taiwan has a universal health care system that does not allow private. There's a lot of ways to, to do that. But until we get to the point, I think, where we recognize this is an issue uh, that needs to be addressed in a, by the central government, we're going to be stumbling around in, a, in, in what we're stumbling around. I don't know if it's the dark or the gray or wherever we are, because it, it isn't going to change until it happens. Well, one of the things that the government can do is uh, uh, they can just uh, regulate uh, uh, the uh, health system like they regulate utilities, like they regulate uh, rural electric companies, et cetera, to so that profits just don't get out of, way out of control. It took Ch Japan 10 years to transition from a, a system like ours to their, their universal health care system. Okay, guys, another hour has flown by. want to let our listeners know that they can tune in to Forward Radio WFMPLP 106.5 and listen live or stream us on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. And for more information about single-payer radio and Kentuckians for single-payer health care, you can go to kyhealthcare.org or follow us on Facebook. And also, um, a big thanks to the team at Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. Uh, it's an all-volunteer station. Uh, and I want to thank uh, Justin. Uh, Justin is the Pope of Forward Radio. Uh, the Pope Mobile has two wheels for Justin. And uh, also include uh, in that big thanks Ruth, our uh, manager, Melissa, K.A., Tori, Carol, Dave, so many others that deal with the fundraising, paying the bills, reporting, training, uh, all volunteers. So if you have a few bucks left from your stimulus check, uh, think about sending uh, a few dollars to forwardradio.org. Click on the donate button and think about becoming a sustainer. Five or ten bucks a month would go a long way. It's forwardradio.org. Guys, thanks again. See you, Thank you. See you next time.